we are making our way through this letter of Paul to the church in Rome. We'll read together verses 9 through 20. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most gracious, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you um, don't just save people and send them out into desert places to be alone, to uh, attempt to um, interpret the word of God, of course, by your spirit, but by ourselves, um, seeking to manifest your your life in this world, just individually, but you put us in a body. You knit us together. You help us to learn what it means to love you from other people who see other um, aspects of your, your beauty and the gifts that they've been given. We're able to, to minister to one another and, and go into the world using the various gifts with which you've um, distributed amongst your church so that we are all part of the body with different roles to play. So we pray that you would continue to help us to do so in grace and mercy with a peace that surpasses understanding. So we thank you. Give us now understanding of your word as we seek um, to be more like Christ and for the gospel to go forth plainly and clearly. And this we pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. So again, Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. The word of the Lord. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The word of the Lord. Now just to, to start with, one, if you've noticed that the hymns and things today seem to be really talking about you know, sin and um, depravity and these different things, and that's what the Word of God is talking about today. So it's a bit of a theme as we're picking up on Paul as he's um, telling us, you know, these things that you see that Paul has said. And just to start with, in verse 9, uh, the ESV says, the English Standard Version, thank God for different English translations. Um, almost all of them that we have are very good. Um, it's typically Dr. Kara's speech on Bible translations are Get a good one, um, one that you, you like, and, and there may be one translation that you like to just use in your um, devotional time, but another that you use for Bible study. Um, but it's good to have more than one translation so that you can kind of use one um, with the other, not against the other, but to get more of a, a nuance of a language, because anytime you're translating from one language to another, um, you just lose something. doesn't matter how hard you try to get, like I was saying from the pictures we had today, there's, a, there's create, create, Haitian Creole beneath these pictures, and I read it, and Google translates it literally, and it's like, 
I know that's not what she's trying to say. And then I'll send it, if it's necessary, I'll send it to, to Joy, and she'll read it, and she'll say, she's saying this, and then if necessary, she'll send it to somebody else to say, am I getting this right? Somebody that lives there, and then they have to translate that back into English, and it's like, it is just, uh, who's it, Wycliffe um, says that they seek to, it's not Wycliffe, who's the other place that next to Wycliffe in um, Charge, thank you. Yeah, that they seek to have um, Bibles translated into the heart language of all the different peoples. So if you've ever gone to a different country where they speak a different language, and then suddenly you come across some people speaking English, it just kind of draws you into it. But anytime you're going from one language to another, it's, it's difficult to get the nuanced feel of it. So one of the ways to do that is with different um, English translations. Now what the ESV has done here, and the only reason I bring it up, is because they've inserted some words in here, and sometimes the Bible translators do that to help us um, understand what the underlying language is trying to say. However, and I'm not, I don't pretend to know more than the ESV translators, but people who do have agreed that this is a, an issue here. Um, it says, what then are we Jews? Now, when you see the word Jews, it depends on what translation you're using. If you have an ESV, you see a little footnote one, you go down to the one. In Greek, it says, are we? So the word Jews is not there in the original language. It just says, what are we any better off? And so then the question is, and this is how you do Bible study, we, who we? We who? We, who do we he talking about? So it says, are we any better off? Well, Paul is a Jew, so he, it, what the ESV translators are, are trying to help us to see, God bless them, is that he's talking about we Jews. But he's also a believing Jew as opposed to the non-believing Jews that he just was just finished talking about. So the good news is, typically when we see a little problem like this in interpretation and translation, it works both ways. So either way it's working here, the, the point is the same. However, um, I do believe, and I follow the different, Steve Lawson and Sproul, different people who um, seem to think that he's not really talking about, are we, are we Jews any better? But the question here is, are we any better than the Jews? Because what he had just been through talking, got through talking about was, so there's all these, the Jewish people, that are not, you know, the subgroup of Jewish people who are not believers in Jesus Christ, but they had the Old Testament, they had circumcision, they had all these things, but they're, they're not saved because they didn't have faith. What good was it? And he's saying, you know, was there any advantage even being a Jew then? He's a much in every way. They had the oracles of God. They had these things. They, and so we talked about that in the last sermon um, you know, the advantage of being Jewish, you know, what advantage God had given them. And so. The next point that Paul is making here is, whoever the we is, he's saying, are we better? And we could ask ourselves in the church, um, are we better than anybody else then? You know, even the Jews um, were better off than the non-believing Jews because they had all these things, but they weren't united by faith, so here we are. Um, are we better than other people? And so what Paul starts off by saying right here is, no, not at all. So, and I just want to say this too. Does it come to any surprise? But does it come as a surprise to anyone in here that the Bible says that everyone's a sinner? I mean, I don't know if anybody's shocked by that or not. But you know, at least in, in this church, in this area, in our culture, uh, to be able to say, you know, the Bible says everybody's a sinner, you'd be like, yeah, okay. And do you think that there are many that we come across who aren't Christians who don't know that the Bible says that all people are sinners? And I think for the most part, people that we tend to come across, if we would say, 
hey, the Bible says everybody's sinners, for the most part, it's getting <laughs> frequently run across people who are completely ignorant of the Bible um, in our country even. But um, even they might would know, yeah, I know the church pretty much condemns everybody. Yeah, I got that. Um, and yet there are still a lot of people that I come across, and perhaps you've come across too, that, that are clinging to personal righteousness. There's believers that get this, and they still cling to personal righteousness. And if they're told that the Bible's standard of righteousness is perfection based on God's holiness, well, that's when you start to get a little bit of kickback from people sometimes. And they'll say, well, nobody's perfect. And hopefully your response to that is, I know, yes, we agree. That's the point. We are all sinners and without hope in the world in the sight of God. And I might add, um, where we aren't even as good as the standard that we set for ourselves. We don't even... Uh, and you can tell even non-believers I've had conversations with and talking about a righteous, holy standard, you know, by what standard are we being judged? Uh, and if it's a holy God, but then you can say, you know, even by your own standard, do you even rise to the level of your own standard? And there may be the occasional prideful person that just wants to say, yes, I'm, I'm awesome and I'm great. And it's like, well, you know, that's pride and, and there you go again. So we really have to understand that there is a standard, and this is what Paul has been talking about even up to this point, that um, we fall miserably short. And Paul's main point here in this section is not that we are all sinners with no personal righteousness, and therefore God's wrath and curse rest upon us. Now that might sound shocking to you that I don't think that's Paul's main point. It's true. I mean, we are all sinners, and we all do deserve the wrath and curse of God without hope in this world, um, apart from God. But I don't think that's Paul's main point, to sit here and convince you that you're a sinner, although you need to be convinced of that. But in the context here, Paul's main point is that we need to stop thinking that we can be saved or be in good with God by being good enough or by doing good things which is a little bit of a difference between him trying to say, hey, you're bad and you're going to hell. What he's saying in this particular context is, hey, you who call yourself Christian, you who call yourself believer, are you trying to get in on your good behavior? Do you think you're better than everybody else because you chose God or God chose you? Do you think this places you in a higher standing so that now without Christ on your own, you might well be good enough. And we might all say, well, I understand that too. I know the Bible says that we're not good enough. But you have to ask yourself, do you really, really get that, that the Bible says you're not, you're not good enough? Uh, a thing I've gotten used to saying frequently at funerals now about the person is, you know, he was not good enough to get into heaven. Or she was not good enough to get into heaven. Um, I hope at my funeral somebody says that about me. He, he wasn't good enough to get into heaven. Because, and it comes as a shock most of the time, but in places where I do funerals, unless you're a member of this church, and you sit there and you go, well, there he goes again. But people need to hear that. They don't need to hear a sermon at a funeral about how awesome this person is, because one, people are like, did that guy even know him or her? And then the second one is, it can make them think, I'm not that good. How can I possibly, it just makes people feel bad about themselves. 
And that's an odd thing to think. That talking about how good somebody is and how awesome they were can make people feel bad about themselves. Sometimes you need to hear about how bad the person was to make you feel better about yourself. Well, at least I'm not as bad as the guy's funeral I went to today. You know, I don't think that's what I want people to walk away from my funeral thinking. But the idea being that the part that comes behind that, if it's a believing funeral, I doubt I would say it so bluntly, a non-believing funeral, but just to say at a believer's funeral, this person was not good enough to get into heaven and have that followed up with, but he knew the one who was and is good enough to get him in. And that is our hope, our only hope. But yet we all still cling to the hope, the idea, the fallacy, the belief that we still have to do good things to get into his good graces or that we are good because we're Christians and that we tend to be better than everybody else out there. Now, hopefully, because we are filled with the Spirit, hopefully because we do have the oracles of God, we do have the gospel, we do have the good news of Christ, that we do begin to um, have a, a fruit of the Spirit that begins to exhibit itself out in the world that changes us, where we're not as judgmental, we're not as argumentative, we're not all these different things. But you have to be very careful of that because suddenly we overlook the sin that still clings too easily to us and begin to just see the fruit of the Spirit working in us and start to think, my, how bright and shiny we are, and people ought to really be bowing down and worshiping us. And that isn't Jesus lucky to have us. So we have to be careful because that's Paul's point here is don't start to think that you're any better than anybody else, Jew, Christian, Buddhist, whoever. We're all, and what Paul is doing here is saying everybody in the whole world is under sin. Now, you might be thinking, you were just saying that he wasn't telling us how bad we are so that we could be convinced that we're under his judgment and condemnation. Again, I'm saying that's, <laughs> that is a point, and it is a real point, it is a valid point. However, what Paul is saying here is, so therefore, you need to get that, so get it into your head so that you're not using your good works and your behavior to try to get in good with God so that God can use you more, so that God can bless you more, so that you, know, you begin to look at your life, and I think it's Jerry Bridges that had the imagery of a, uh, a performance treadmill where you're always trying to do better and better and better, but you're not getting anywhere because you're just always trying to do better and better and better. So we have to be careful about this. So then, you know, the question is, are we better off than the Jews who had the law of Moses, the oracles of God, and yet did not have faith? All they had was external religion, and so we are supposed to look at ourselves and say, are we any better? And Paul's answer is no, not when it comes to standing before the judgment seat of a most holy God on your own. We too are condemned before God. We cannot stand before God. And you also cannot plead ignorance. So you're not going to be able on the last day to stand before God and say, I didn't know. Nobody told me. I don't understand why you're going to hold me accountable for my sin when I had no idea. And Paul's already addressed this in Romans 1, 18 through 20. He says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the unbelievers, by their unrighteousness, they're, they're pushing the truth down. They're keeping it down because what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
for his invisible attributes, the things about God that you can't see, his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived. That means people have seen it and understood it ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things and on and on they go. So he's like, there's no excuse. Man knows deep down there is a God. They won't all confess it and they won't all even admit it to themselves because what the Bible is saying, there's a psychological, spiritual thing that's happening within an unbeliever that God is not acting on spiritually is that they, the light that comes to them, anything they see that says, yes, there's a God, yes, there's a standard, yes, you need to repent, yes, you need to believe these things, they just push it down. It's like a person who uh, is denying that they have some disease. And so the doctor's like, hey, you have this disease, and unless you have this surgery, you're dead in a month. And they're like, that's not true, I feel perfectly fine. No, you don't. Your, your arm fell off last week. And, and no, I'm okay, so you know, I'm, I'm doing perfectly fine. Um, it's just one of those things that happen. No, you've got all these symptoms, and the doctors keep showing you, and you just deny it, deny it, deny it. And we've, we've seen people in our lives where you try to say, hey, you're heading in a bad direction, and if you don't change what you're doing, you're, you're going to end up in a very bad situation. And it's just denial, denial, denial. And that's what God is saying happens with the non-believer is even as God shines his light in different ways in creation, and especially even from the revealed word of God, as that is pressed upon people's lives who aren't believers, that it's just it's when a bright light comes, you close your eyes more tightly. And the more tightly they close their eyes, the more they refuse to acknowledge anything of God. That's what you're up against in the world. And so we have to thank God for his solution to these things. But a person cannot stand before God and plead ignorance because that is a lie that they're saying to themselves and it'll be stripped away. And so in chapter 3, Paul is saying you can't plead ignorance and you certainly can't plead innocence. You certainly cannot stand before God and say I'm, I'm innocent. I've done no wrong. Verse 9, second half right here. Chapter 3 says, both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Now, that's Paul's way of saying everybody in the whole world. There's two categories of people. Um, a friend of mine that was on submarines said there were two things in the ocean, um, submarines and targets. It made me feel bad about the ships that are on our side too, but I think I know what he, he meant by that. And so what Paul is saying, there's just Jews and Greeks, believers and non-believers, and they're all under sin. And then we get to verse 10, and you see this little section, depending on how your, your Bible is set up, um, how the editors printed this thing, but verses um, 10 through 18 may be indented or somehow set apart as different on the page. And it's because all of these verses are from the Old Testament. They're from different Psalms, one's from Isaiah. But this is all Old Testament teaching that Paul is saying, this is nothing new. This is not me just coming up with these ideas. This is something the Jews understand as well. This is part of the oracles of God that's been pushed forward so that we understand that no one is righteous, no, not one. 
And so no one being righteous, and the theological phrase for that is um, called original sin. So we don't have original righteousness, there's just original sin. The original sin was Adam eating from the tree, but that was the first sin. But from that we inherit original sin, sin that originates from within us. We've lost original righteousness, and what that means is we are not just sinners because we sin, but we sin because we're sinners. There's this, this root, it's called total depravity in the tulip thing, but it's better known as like radical corruption. Like there's so much corruption. It's like if you have a, a software program or something, and it's so corrupted that it can't even, you know, you have a disk and it's so corrupted you can't even read it anymore. It doesn't mean every single piece of it is bad, but so much of it's bad that it doesn't even work anymore. And that's what Paul is saying here is that we have lost this original righteous. There's none who are righteous. And so there's a, a Greek word, and I want to tell you, teach you these two Greek words. One is ook. That's a cool sounding word, and it means none or no one. Ook, and it's O-U-K if you do it in English letters. And then the next word is estin, E-S-T-I-N, which means is. Um, no one is, or none, literally, none there is. Greek people talk like Yoda. None there is, I tell you. So none there is. Uk estin. So what you see as you're looking through this is a repetition of this phrase, uk estin, uk estin, uk estin. None there is. You can see it pretty good in the English. No, none is righteous. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Verse 12, no one does good. And then you go all the way to the end, and there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, you miss it there because of the way they've hidden the ukestin in that last phrase, but it pops up again there. So what you have is ukestin, none it there is who are righteous. No, not one. Ukestin understands. That sounds like there's some kid named ukestin, and he gets it. But no, ukestin is none there is. No one understands. And so the idea of this understanding is it's, it's, it's a wisdom kind of understanding. There are people out there who understand all kinds of stuff. They understand cars. They understand physics. They understand buildings. They understand all sorts of things. But when it comes to the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, when it comes to understanding things of, of salvation, when it comes to understanding things about God, then... Um, they can be very smart and yet not know their sin or, their, or who God is. People can be very spiritual and yet dismiss Christ. Their only hope of salvation by the, the one true God. So you get lots of smart people who dismiss God because of their sin. You get a lot of very spiritual people. They may be very religious people um, in various different religions, including Christianity, and they just don't know God. Because without Christ, without the operation of the Holy Spirit, uk estin, no one, no not one. So that means you included without Christ, no. No one, not one person, except for Jesus Christ. And we'll get to that later. But no one, no one, every single person, no one understands. No non-believer understands. And then no one seeks for God in verse 11. Now this word seeks is like a very a diligent search. It's not just I'm out here looking for God. And so there was this thing along, not too long ago where it's like seeker-sensitive churches. 
And the idea with a seeker-sensitive church was there are people out there who are trying to find God and we don't want to put up barriers to their entry, so we want the church to kind of look enough like the world so that when they come in through the doors, there's not this huge culture shock. You know, there's like, so that people who are looking for God might be able to actually find Him when they come in and we don't just shock them with church. And so, you know, one of the protests against that is Nobody's seeking God. There's no non-believer out there who's seeking God. You're trying to reach non-believers? Like, you, the only way you reach non-believers is with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. It's the only thing that works. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The Holy Spirit has said, God has said through his word, here's how I convert sinners. This is how I convert non-believers. Through my word. How are they going to hear without a preacher? How are they going to hear without hearing? How are they going to hear without the word of God going forth? And that's what the church does. That's what we do. The word of God. We go out there and we're telling people about Jesus. Now, somebody might come into the church and if they're not a believer and they've just, for some reason, people come into church for all kinds of reasons. They just feel the need to have something change in their lives. Um, but typically today, if somebody comes into church, maybe they are thinking maybe there's a Jesus or something like this. But if they are truly seeking God, it is because God is seeking them. God has done something. God has to do something in a non-believer's life to make them, to cause them to hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God, to hunger and thirst for truth. And so then what the church has to do is profess this truth. If a person is starving, if a person is, you know, you've all seen movies where somebody's just starving. It's like they don't walk into a room and there's food up there, but it's not quite prepared the way they like it. You know, it's just, it's not, I'm not eating that. You know, no, they're going to eat whatever it is. They're going to come in, they're just, or water. It's like, you've seen them, you know, I love the Westerns. There was a Star Wars movie. It's like where, you know, the guy is just thirsty, and there's this water that this nasty creature, the horses are drinking out of, and you'd look at you like, I'm not drinking that. You're not dying of thirst either. So the guy's down there just throws his head in it and drinks and looks and tastes. This is awful, terrible. I need more. And he goes in and finally, because he knows this is what I need. And so a, a person that the Holy Spirit is operating in and saying, you are lost. You are without Christ in the world. You need, you need me. You don't know me yet, but I'm here and I'm calling you. So when a person like that goes into a church, and then what they get is lots of feel-good music. You're okay. I'm okay. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be great. Then they might. What happened is like, you know, maybe I don't need Jesus as much as I thought I did. All I need is this upbeat, happy group of people that seem to be encouraging me and telling me I can do better. I don't think we should do the opposite and beat people over the head with how terrible they are or anything. But to not say this is the living water, that this is the bread of life, that this is the gospel, that there is a God, there is a Jesus, and we're here to worship him. And when you come into this community, you're coming into a worshiping community. And a good comparison I've heard in the past is when you go to a football game, you go to the, a Panthers football game or, God forbid, a Clemson football game, and you go and they're singing all these songs, they don't go out there and go, hey, what songs would you like to sing today because we're trying to convert you into a, a Clemson fan? What, what, what do you like? And I'm like, I don't know. What do Gamecocks sing? No, we're not doing that. We're Clemson fans. Oh, you told me one of the reasons you went because of the, that you became a Clemson fan for whatever reason is that you got there and you, everybody was in love with the tradition. They were there. They, they loved what they were doing. And so that will also draw people to us 
if they can at least see that we love the God that we worship, but even that's not going to save somebody because then we're like, well, we got to make sure we look good. We got to make sure we're doing this right because we don't want to cause people to go to hell because we're not looking good, singing right, doing right. It's like, are we, the worship is for God. And that's something we have to understand. We are here to worship him. We're not here. We, the, the, the leadership of the church is not supposed to set stuff up here that is, that's here to worship you to give you the type of, of, of experience that you want that's going to make you feel good about yourself and leave. We're here to tell God, we love you. So if you have a friend, a parent, or somebody, and you're going to have a party for them or, or do something good for them, you want to do what they would like for you to do, not what makes you feel good about doing. So maybe, I don't know, you know, you like football. We've talked about, so you give a friend of yours a football ticket. They hate football. They don't like football. You, you offer glory and worship to a person by doing something that they would enjoy, something that they want. If you're going out on a date, you're, most of your arguments are over, where do you want to eat? I don't know, where do you want to eat? I don't know, where do you want to eat? I don't know, where do you want to eat? And then it ends in, I'll go anywhere. Okay, let's go here. Well, anywhere but there. So you know you have this problem with people, but it's that idea that what we want is for us to, we find our joy in the person in the beloved. We find our joy in them. So we want to worship God in a way that God desires to be worshipped. And then as God is calling other people to worship him, they will be drawn into the type of worship that God is calling people to. And that has to do with the gospel. And if a person needs the gospel, if a sick person needs a particular remedy, they can go to another hospital where everybody is made to feel great and it looks good and it's beautiful but they're giving the wrong thing. And then this one over here is kind of ratty looking and stuff, but they're giving you the right cure. Then this is where people are eventually going to be drawn to or the place where the, the cure is. And again, you don't want to make things just impossible to overcome. You want to be as, as, as loving and open and encouraging to people as you can. But it's got to be the gospel that you win people with because if you win them to something else, then that's what they're always going to hunger and thirst after. And so he says, there's nobody that's seeking for God. And if you are seeking for God, that's a good indication that the Holy Spirit's at work within you. And so that's why we want to dig into the Word. That's why we want to do these things, is we want to truly not because it's making me feel better, but because I have to know more of you. And that's where we want to be as believers. And then we get to verse... Again, in verse 12, no one does good. as No one does good. And that's in God's sight. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if a person's out there doing good, you know, people out there doing good things, well, we're talking externally. God sees the heart. Um, if it, without faith, it's impossible to please God, that means, you know, why are you doing good if you're not a believer? And it can be, well, because it makes me feel good. Well, that's good, but that's not necessarily bringing glory to God. And why do you think your help is going to help? Why do you think ultimately that the way you're helping these people is actually going to help these people? And it's because they have a lot of confidence and faith in themselves, their own intentions, their own heart in these things. And it doesn't mean that externally these things are not good, but when God examines the heart, he sees there's no love for him, there's a hate for him, and that it's all about self or it's all about just me being godlike or something. But it's this examination, and when the Bible says no one does good, then the man came to Jesus and said, 
you know, good teacher. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? There are none who are good. He wasn't saying he wasn't good. Jesus is saying, you don't know who I am. Why are you calling me good? You think I'm just some ordinary guy. So you're going to walk to some ordinary teacher and call him good. We don't understand this. There are none who are good. And he's trying to teach him a thing. He's like, don't think you're good by obeying the law. And he even asked him, how is one good? How is one saved? How is one to get the kingdom of heaven? He says, by keeping the commandments. And basically, Jesus says, have you done it? And he says, yes, I've done it for my birth. And Jesus is like, okay, good. He gives him one little test and says, you know, well, then go sell everything you have and come and follow me. Because he knew he was a rich man. And the man went away sad because he had great wealth. And he wouldn't follow Jesus. So if your wealth is getting, whatever it is, getting in the way of following Jesus, if you're called to let it go and you can't let it go, then that thing's your idol. And so we have to be careful because there are none who are good, not even one. And so Paul is set up here from all these different Old Testament passages, original sin. They, people are sinful. And then the next part is like, this is how it comes out. <clears throat> He's got your, your throat, your lips, your mouth, your feet. And so the throat's an open grave. That's nastiness. You know, you open a grave up and it just stinketh. Uh, you know, you open it, you see in, it's nothing but death. And even things that people may be seeing that are supposed to produce life. I'm saying this to help you, but they're non-believers. It's just death. It's just producing death. And they use their tongues to deceive. You know, it might be flattering words. It might be good words. It might be all these things. But for the non-believer, they're using their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. And so, like, it's a very venomous uh, reptile, and apparently they, their, their venom sacs are under their, their, their lips, kind of under their mouth, and so when, it, it, when the fangs hit, the, the, the venom sac goes in there too, and it, just, and it kills painfully and quickly. I think Cleopatra died with the, being stung by asps, and it's like, you know, this is what's going on with the anomaly. It's just like, and so you have to be very careful about who's teaching your children, um, who's entertaining your children, who's talking to your children, uh, who's talking to you? Who are you listening to? Because if you're listening to these people who are just lost and non-believers, it can sound good, it can be flattery, but, but they don't get it, they don't understand, and, and they have the open mouths or graves, their tongues are deceiving, the venom of asses is in their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And we can see we end up like this sometimes too, and we have to be careful that we, because he's talking about us without Christ, and we aren't perfectly glorified yet, so we have to be very careful with our mouths. James 3 talks about this a lot. Feet are swift to shed blood. Their paths are ruin and misery. And the way, and this is all talking about this road thing, the way of life, the way of peace they have not known. Even the people who teach, the hippie people or whatever, it's like peace, peace, peace all the time. You don't know the way of peace. You're, you're, you're missing it. You're being deceived and you're leading people to hell because this is not the way of peace. And then in verse 18, there is no fear. But we're back to ukestin fabas theo. There is none there is with the fear of God before their eyes. And so you get this whole little thing here from um, 10 to 18 where it starts with ukestin, no one is righteous, and it ends with ukestin, no one fears God. And that's why, is because there's no fear of God before their eyes. And so just real quickly to talk about the fear of God, God says perfect love casteth out fear. So there's a type of fear that you have. Like if you are afraid of somebody, it's different than the type of fear that God is talking about. There should be a healthy fear for your parents if you're a child. There should be a healthy fear for the law. 
There should be a healthy fear for lightning, for fire, you know, things like this, electricity. But there are people who are electricians. And if they have no fear of electricity, then they aren't going to get very far as electricians because it's going to get them. And the same thing is, is true of, of God, that we have to have a respect for God and not just some flippancy that says he doesn't care how I act. He doesn't care about anything. He's just happy, good, fine. I'm not worried about him. I'm not thinking about him. I'm going to live life the way I want to live it. I'll get my life straight and then God can do what he wants to do. And, you know, I'm sure, if, you know, eventually I might get in a bad spot and I'll call him and he'll come in and swing in and, and help me and everything. But um, it's like there's no fear of God. There's no respect for God. There's no, it's like understanding who God is, who the creator is, who your savior is. And so he gets to verse 19, and he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now remember, in verse 9, he just said, Jews and Greeks, everybody are under sin. And now he's talking about this law again. Um, the law speaks to everyone who's under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So there is a law which people are aware of in their consciences. People know there's a right and there's a wrong. He's already talked about this in Romans. But this law that exists within God, this moral law, um, is going to be used to hold the whole world accountable to God. And, then it, and it stops every mouth. And so this is one of the purposes of the law, the moral law, is to be able to say, you know, I can do whatever I want to do. I'm a good person. I'm good enough. It's like, well, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever thought a bad thought? Have you ever, you know, it doesn't take long to inquire into a person's life where if, they, if they're going to be introspective at all to be able to say, it's like, no, you're not perfect. <laughs> you, you're not perfectly holy. You have sinned and you will be accountable to God. In verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being, and the word there is sarks, flesh, no flesh will be justified, declared righteous. No person will be righteous in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So this is Paul's point that he's getting at here is if you are using the law, if you're using behavior, if you're using I've got to be good enough, I have to be better to be able to be um, in good standing before God, you're going to drive yourself crazy and you're going to become a legalist and you're going to start to get angry at people around you who aren't trying so hard. It's kind of, I hate to use the mask analogy because people are all over the place on that thing, but let's just assume we're outsiders looking at a cultural event and there are some people who believe that if you did not wear a mask, you are killing other people. And then there are other people who believe if you wear a mask, if I wear a mask, I might be killing myself or I might be giving in to something where I'd be killing other people. And so if you're one of these people that are like, everybody's got to wear a mask or you're killing people, then you, you've seen these type of people, you know, on TV, especially up in, up in New York where things like this happen apparently in these videos and somebody will walk into a store without a mask and suddenly they are attacked by the maskers. You know, it's like, you, what are you doing? You're killing people because they have this moral outrage over the insensitivity of somebody who, who's putting everybody in the world at risk. Now, whatever, just an analogy, because this is what happens in the church. If I believe in order for me to be a good Christian, I've got to do good, that means I've got to... Get, well, let's talk about giving. That's a good one. So, giving. So, let's say I am a person who gives a lot of money to the church. Okay. Now, a lot of money, that's relative. Okay. It, the money that I possess the ability to give, Bill Gates' money, 
He's like, I don't know, I think he probably sneezes and loses that much money in a second. I don't know, but my, my money and Bill Gates' money is different. Uh, my money and somebody else's money and then my community may be different. So I give money. I remember when I was a deacon, and you're, one of the first things you do as a deacon is you get to count checks. And you're trying not to look at people's checks and what people are giving and stuff, but I remember seeing a check for $1,000. $1,000! Back in the 80s, $1,000 meant something back then. It was 90s, actually. But I remember seeing $1,000. My thought immediately was, people give $1,000? How does anybody give $1,000? I don't understand. Somebody can give $1,000. And so then I could, and I will go back from, that made me convicted because I was like, okay, maybe I'm, should be given more myself. But I could start to give, and we've all said this. I've heard people say it, not all have said this. But you start to give money, and you notice other people aren't giving as much as you. You know, because you kind of sometimes, especially officers and deacons and different people, you know, we talk, we see things, and people can kind of find certain things out sometimes. Or you get the impression, you know, I'm giving a certain amount of money, but other people aren't giving anything. Well, then suddenly you can get kind of irritated about that. Why am I giving? You know, here's what, you know, if I didn't give money, I could buy a boat. If I didn't give money, I could have a bigger house. If I didn't get money, blah, 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 blah. And so you can get resentful about people who don't ever give anything. And then you become legalistic about giving. And then you want to say, well, how do we do that? And so you become irritated with people who aren't giving instead of going, what joy are people missing by not understanding the joy of being able to give sacrificially? The joy of being, say, what the joy it is to be a cheerful giver. You just, rather than going, I can't believe. It's like the guy that's at the end of his life, and he's, he's been a Christian all his life. He's lived his whole life. He's, he's back here at the end of his life, and there's another person that's just been a horrific individual, blaspheming God, everything. At the end of his life, he's like, Jesus, I understand Jesus. I understand Jesus. I've wasted my life. I understand Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, I'm saved. And then the other guy is like irritated, because that guy got to live his life like he wanted to the whole time, and he had to sit here and be a Christian his entire life. It's not fair. And so the idea is, is like, that guy's not a believer because he doesn't love what he's doing. He's doing it all out of obligation. He's doing it all out of just, I have to do it, and I'm angry about it. And that's the way people are if they keep the law because they think you've got to keep the law for God to love you. To be a good Christian, you've got to keep the moral standard. And it's hard, and it's difficult. And it's trying. And then you see somebody else is not doing it. And you can get very irritated with them. And you start to say, you're not dressing right. You're not looking right. You're not talking right. You're not. And so you begin to feel good about yourself by pressing burdens on other people that we ourselves aren't able to bear. And that's what Jesus fussed at his church for, that you are making a convert and making them twice the child of hell than they were before because you're not doing nothing but laying burdens. You're not introducing them to the Christ that is here to release them from their burdens, to show them where true joy is, to show them that <laughs> stop it, relax, be quiet, understand. There are none who are good. There are none who are righteous. They've all turned aside. There's no one who does good. Open, throats open, tongues deceive, venom, math, the way of peace you don't know. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. If you get that and you start to see how can somebody as bad as me be saved by a God like that, then that changes everything. And it doesn't make you more legalistic. It should just make you more grateful. It should just make you more at peace. It should just make you say, God, thank you. And then when you see other people who don't get it, it just should break your heart.
And so there's a, a just finished, it took me a long time to get through it because I got interrupted by several things, but this book called Unbroken about um, was Louis Zamperini. And um, he was a, it's a movie about him, the movie was okay, but the book is just like, man, I put it, we have a library back here. You're welcome to go look at any books we have back there, borrow them. We'd like for you to bring it back eventually, but if you don't, that's okay. But uh, just we'll try to put some books in some rotations so you can kind of go back there and look and see what's back there. But Unbroken is back there, and it's good. It's got a lot of torture and stuff in it from World War II where the guy was captured. He was an Olympic, uh, probably would have been um, the, the fastest runner in the world. You know, but he gets captured, and um, he's tortured. He's just singled out in this camp by this guy in this Japanese um, prison camp. Um, manager, and he's just tortured. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's terrible. So he finally gets out, and we get the book away, but, you know, he does get out, and, um, <clears throat> and he's just got this hatred for this guy, and he's just like, he wants him dead, and he's just like, and he's, at night, he's dreaming about him. He turns to alcoholism. He just, his life is just down, 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 down. He wakes up one night, and in his, in his dream, he's choking this guy that he's, he's just on top of him, just choking him in his dream, and he wakes up, and he's choking his pregnant wife into bed, and he's like, what have I done? And he jumps back, and he's like, help me, help me, and he can't quit drinking. He can't do these things. His wife, obviously, she's like, I'm out, so she's leaving him and stuff, and then um, about the same time, Billy Graham is doing, starting these evangelistic crusades, and he goes to Los Angeles, and he starts one there, and it's faltering, and this um, one news reporter says, you know, let's, let's talk about him. So they start talking about Billy Graham, so he stays a little longer. Um, Frank Zamperini's wife goes to uh, the Billy Graham crusade, just gets radically saved, goes back to her husband, says, I'm not leaving you. I'm here. You need to come see Billy Graham. And he's like, I'm not going to see Billy Graham. You know, I'm not going to do it. So finally she talks him into it. He goes, he listens. Um, the first sermon is about the, the, the woman caught in adultery and Jesus is, you know, they're all going to stone her. He says, you without sin, cast the first stone. And they're all, he's drawing his finger in the sand and he's like, what's he drawing? And Billy Graham's using this analogy. He's probably writing their sins down and, you know, each person seeing their own sin and they go away sad. And he says, so what about your sin? Do you have sin? You have sin. You need to repent. You need to trust in Christ. And Zamperini's there is, I'm not a bad person. Because he's had so much terrible stuff done to him. He's, I'm not a bad person. I'm not, how dare he? How dare he? And he storms out during the every head bowed, every eyes closed thing. And so his wife comes to him and is like, you got to go back again. You got to go back again. And so finally they talk. He said, I'll go. But when they do the every head bow, every eyes closed again, I'm out. I'm out. And so he does the same thing again. He's talking about, uh, <clears throat> you know, again, you're drowning in your sin, just stuff like this. And he floated. He's got the world record for being on a a um, lost on a raft on the ocean and recovered alive um, longer than anybody else. And so he's gone through all these terrible things and, um, and he can't get past the terrible things that have been done to him. And then he remembers, he, anyway, there's this, he, it's every head bow, every eyes closed, I'm out. He gets up, he says, suddenly it just hit me. He says, I am the man. I am a sinner. I do need Christ. And he turns around and he went to walk up front. And he says, Billy Graham saw him and said, that's right. He says, God's speaking to you, come forward. And he went forward, and he was saved, and went home. He burned all his bad magazines. He got rid of all his liquor, uh, everything, radical change, complete change, switch, and began to pray for his tormentor. Later found out that his tormentor had died, and he was struck by this deep sadness because he'd never been able to share the gospel with him and knew that that guy was going to end up in hell. And then later, God, I want to get the book away. So anyway... <laughs> 
<laughs> and later. But it's this radical transformation that happens in this man's life that never should be able to, so much had happened to him that for him to stand before God who says, you are a sinner and you need me. He was like, I can't do that. But then he recognized it, that I too am a sinner and I need grace and I need Christ. And that's where we are. And so the, when I return, we're going to look at verse 21. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemptive power that is in Christ Jesus. And that's the gospel. And then if you're truly transformed by this gospel, then we understand what it means to come to the table. That when we're coming to this table, that God is saying, without me, you're lost. And for those who are united to me by faith and covenant, this is what's happening in the preaching of the gospel. That there is actually the spirit at work. You are receiving me. So let's pray. Father God, we pray that we would indeed receive you. That we would recognize because of our radical corruption, our sinfulness, that we can't earn salvation. We can't clean our lives up ever enough to say, now look at how good we are. We deserve you. For even our tears of repentance have to be washed by your blood. But we thank you by the work of your spirit that you come to us. You clothe us with your righteousness. You give us your righteousness, your grace, your mercy. Help us to live in that grace, in that mercy, truly being transformed because of our hearts and not because of our flesh wanting to be performance-driven. So we thank you. Help us to be true believers in Christ's name we pray. Amen.